2003, Kate Clifford Larson published the amazing Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero. Smithsonian Magazine's review for the book described it as a brilliant biography, drawing on groundbreaking field research as well as long-neglected sources. Larson demonstrates that Tubman relied on an intricate network of slaves, free blacks, and whites that enabled her to move about virtually unseen as she led fugitive to freedom. Her book debunks so many different myths about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad that it really is must-reading. This is one of seven or eight interviews that I'm going to be conducting for the National Endowment for the Humanities Program on Abolition and the Underground Railroad. All right, so at the time you wrote uh, your, your first Harriet Tubman book, uh, there was a, I understand that there was a surprising dearth of contemporary scholarship on her life. Um, and you, you say that like the, the popular narrative that existed about her seems to have emerged largely from the works that were written for children. Um, in, in the course of your research, can you talk about some of the myths that you had to debunk that uh, had survived or that had existed in the popular narrative? So before I get into the myths, I have to say that I believe some of them too when I started my research in the 1990s. And as I was doing my research, I observed more myths emerging that were created in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. So it was a phenomenon for me to watch as a historian, new narratives being created about Tubman that were not accurate and they were brand new totally manufactured modern stories. So um, so in my research, I, you know, originally there were many things about her that were misconceptions and uh, false uh, histories because the original work that was done on her in the 19th century and early 20th century was faulty to begin with. Um, so I was able to debunk some myths like, um, how many people did Harriet Tubman rescue? Well, the, the standard line was 300 people in 19 trips. So I discovered in my research that it was more like 70 family and friends in about 13 trips back and forth to Maryland, not throughout the whole entire deep South. It was just to Maryland. And um, I remember going through the primary resources and discovering Tubman telling people that she thought she had rescued 40 to 50 or maybe 50 to 60 people in eight or nine trips. And I thought, well, wow, why were they saying that she rescued, you know, 300 people in 19 trips? And when I discovered more primary sources, the original biographer, um, uh, Sarah Bradford, made up the numbers. And actually, she says in that original biography, um, scenes in the life of Harriet Tubman in 1868, she says, well, Harriet doesn't remember, but I've heard, and then she says 300 people in 19 trips. So how important is it to re to look at words and what they're actually saying? Not that that was the truth. It was Sarah Bradford saying, well, I heard. Yeah, what does that mean? She made it up. She made the numbers up. So that was a big thing. 
Um, and then, you know, where she was born, when she was born, um, it turns out, you know, we have all these documents that people assume did not exist because she was an enslaved person. She could not read or write actually real, uh, you know, letters. So they thought, well, because she couldn't read or write, there were no documents that could corroborate her story. When in fact, because it is an enslaved person, the tragedy is she was very well documented because she was property. So there are the documents. There's a midwife payment to help her mother give birth to her in um, the late, uh, late winter, early spring of 1822. So all these things began to emerge that I had no understanding of before I started researching. And doing that research, it's so important for historians to do primary research because um, you learn to read so critically because words matter, like Sarah Bradford saying, I heard that she did this. So um, there are so many documents related to Harriet Tubman. They still show up periodically, even today. I haven't stopped researching her life since um, my book was published in, in late 2003, early 2004. And I've added to that. And now a lot of that research is represented in the two national parks dedicated to her life. I've published more work on her um, and it's ongoing because I just know more things are going to show up because people now are attuned to Tubman. And so when they investigate their research and their primary sources, they may come across her in their those records and they'll say, hey, she was here and they can add to the historical record. Now, she grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland in the 1820s and 30s. Can you talk about, uh, as you did in, in your presentation, uh, about the geography of that region and how her encyclopedic knowledge of it was so important for her future work on the Underground Railroad. So it's critical to understand the landscapes of her life, not only just the physical, environmental, uh, natural environment, but also that human landscape too. And so she was born in Dorchester County on the eastern shore of Maryland. Dorchester County is uh, on the eastern side of the Chesapeake. That's why they call it the eastern shore. Um, and it is a very low, flat landscape, and it's filtered and infiltrated with lots of water. There are marshes and streams and swamps and rivers. And um, so she grew up in this environment that had forests and uh, fields of agricultural fields and many, many different types of waterways. So she had to learn to uh, navigate that landscape physically walk it, drive it, uh, you know, ride it on wagons and to use it to protect herself. Um, and as a way, as a means to find ways to be with her family, because she was separated from her family from a very young age, all of her siblings. So they would find time at midnight to try to trek to the neighboring plantations to meet with each other because they were all hired out to different people. So she learned at a young age how to navigate at night, how to be quiet and silent walking across those fields. She didn't carry a lantern because you're out in a field and there's a lantern. That farmer is going to say, who's in my field with that lantern or who's in the woods with the lantern? None of that. So just looking at that landscape and she grew up basically as a naturalist. She had to. She had to understand 
you know, what was good in those forests and those fields, what she could tap into to feed herself, to create medicines to heal herself, um, you know, just to, to, that could protect her and hide her. So um, those landscapes are vital to her education. And the human landscape is incredibly important, of course. And normally when we talk about communities and people, we don't think of the landscapes of people, but there are landscapes of human beings. And she had to navigate those landscapes of the white enslavers, um, uh, other African-Americans who were enslaved, her family, uh, free African-Americans, half the black population in Dorchester County was free at the time. So there's all these landscapes of people, the black mariners on the waterfront, um, free and enslaved, the black dock workers, you know, she had to learn all those human landscapes and she remembered and she used all of those resources later as an adult. I like how um, you've talked about both of those things, her ability to read the landscape and, and read people as a form of literacy, um, something that I had never considered before and I'm certainly going to be using it in, in my classroom. But one thing I want to ask you related to what your answer was, you know, and I'm asking, I'm going to ask you to just explain something very simple that I think most people don't understand is that idea of hiring out enslaved people. Could you just talk briefly about how that happened, how and why that happened? So in the upper South, um, slavery, the way it operated was in some ways different than the deep South where you have larger plantations and dedicated enslaved populations who stay on those plantations and work uh, year round. But in the Upper South, the slaveholding um, um, statistics are that there were smaller slaveholding communities, uh, people enslaved fewer people, white people enslaved fewer um, African Americans. And um, some white people had excess labor. They had more enslaved people than they could use on their plantations like Edward Brodus, who had a small farm, but he had many enslaved people that he had inherited. So in order to make money and you know, eke profits out of slavery, he hired out his enslaved people to area farmers who either did not own enslaved people or they didn't have enough labor. So they hired slaves from other plantation owners. And this was the nature of slavery on the Eastern shore of Maryland. So Tubman experienced a lot of mobility and transition during her childhood, moving from plantation to plantation to work for different um, white people. And Edward Brodus reaped the financial gain of hiring her out and her siblings as well. She didn't obviously had very little stability as, as a young girl. Um, but I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that from your descriptions and your research about her mother, uh, that her mother certainly, uh, as a incredibly strong woman, was a, had to have been in a, a role model for her. I mean, all mothers are, but especially in this case. So I, you know, I admire. I'm I'm not going to focus just on Rit. I have to say Ben and Rit, uh, Harriet Tubman's parents. They had to have been fierce parents because they did everything they could to protect their children from afar, and they had networks of people who were free and enslaved who were their co-conspirators um, in protecting their children and educating their children and um, sending mass messages back and forth and providing access to be with each other. So, um, you know, Tubman 
while she couldn't be with her siblings and her parents all the time, there was a community there that was trying to protect her, love her, cherish her, um, and educate her. And we have to recognize that community. I think that applies to any community in the deep South or even in the North when slavery existed. These are communities that are under stress and by virtue of slavery, they are separated frequently but those parents found ways to make sure that their their children were cared for and protected. At age 13, Harriet Tubman suffered a terrible head injury. Um, can you talk about how, uh, I'm not gonna ask you several things at once, but can you talk about how that impacted her life and how uh, you were able to deduce or how you came about uh, your, um, your finding that she suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy? So um, she endured this horrific head injury um, as a result of an, uh, an iron weight from a scale on a dry goods store counter thrown at her head and it cracked her skull open. And she talks about this in lectures and interviews in the North after she achieved freedom. And um, she was knocked unconscious and it took months for her mother to, to nurse her back to health. And as soon after that happened, she experienced tremendous uh, visionary hallucinations and um, other t types of, uh, I don't know, uh, brain activity that um, she interpreted as um, visions and messages from God because sometimes she would, you know, she would have these seizures and she would fall to the ground. This was documented, talked about, she would just collapse and it seemed like she was asleep. But she described during those seizures, as I call them, she would be floating above the earth and watching everybody down below trying to tend to her as she's having a seizure. Or she would hear uh, voices. She would hear, um, she, so she attributed God speaking to her and giving her messages. Or she would hear singing. So she assumed it was angels that were singing. Or she'd hear water rushing. Or she would see fire and flames or feel the heat of flames. And these symptoms are very similar to what people who suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy experience. And more than 50% of people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, we call TLE, um, experience them as a result of a severe head injury. Now today, people can take medication that, that um, controls some of the seizures and the visionary and auditory activity that they have, but then she had none of that. And in her world, the only explanation that she had was that God was speaking to her. And it was an, a spiritual, otherworldly experience that she was having. So, um, and she didn't have medication to kind of subdue those things. So she just incorporated it into her life. And she became hyper-religious, very, very religious, um, which is also very typical of TLE patients. And so it, 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 it empowered her in, in a way that um, I think that we need to learn to respect and understand that she felt that God was protecting her and guiding her every day. And I often say, you know, I don't know if we can argue with that because certainly someone was watching over her because she continued to do amazing things and survived till she was, you know, 91 years old. Now, Harriet had a, a, a relationship, a close relationship with John Brown. Um, how did their friendship and alliance impact him? Uh, you know, I, I, I look at them as symbiotic. They met each other and they both had that 
powerful, powerful commitment and dedication to ending slavery. They both were enraged by slavery and they were both deeply, deeply spiritual. And when she met him, you know, he comes into her house in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, and he starts speaking in these biblical words and tones about how Jesus is going to come in on his horse and slay all the slaveholders. And, and she's like, oh my gosh, you know, here's a white guy saying that she couldn't believe it. And she, she felt he was the greatest white man that ever lived. And he could not believe this five foot tall, petite woman was such a warrior. And he respected that. And he respected her so much that he called her General Tubman. And for a 19th century white man to call a little white uh, black woman General is pretty astounding. They had this tremendous respect and awe for each other. So, you know, she loved him. She thought he really was an amazing human being. And she had never met a white man that was willing to die for her. And he was willing to do that. And in fact, he did. And for many other African-Americans. So she would go on to eventually in her later life, establish a nursing home and call it the John Brown Hall. Yeah. A few moments ago, you talked about the network of people, the community that Ben and Ritt uh, relied on to keep tabs on their children. And I think that actually uh, directly or indirectly gives us a insight into what the Underground Railroad ult ultimately was. I think that many people learn about the Underground Railroad as maybe Harriet Tubman plus some white Quakers. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about that in, incredible network of largely black abolitionists who created this community looking out for one another? Right. So um, the Underground Railroad uh, certainly became well known because of histories that were written decades later, and many of them featured um, white Quakers that participated in it. But the reality is, um, and the documents prove this and show this, is that the foundation of the Underground Railroad were African-Americans and African-American communities, particularly in the South, because there weren't really many white people who were willing to help in the South, help people escape. It was it just it, few and far between compared to once you get to Pennsylvania, you know, it seems like every other person or so people would tell us today it was willing to help freedom seekers. But free and enslaved people in the South were putting their lives on the line every single day to help others escape. And um, that's a story that is beginning to be told. And uh, there are many more of those stories to come. And it shows the remarkable courage of community commitment to freedom and equality and family. Um, so Tubman grew up in that community. So she she had a basis of who to trust and then she had those skills to read people so once she reached the north after she escaped and achieved her own freedom she used those skills to determine people's character and she was really good at it and she tapped into and became part of this community of very very powerful underground railroad supporters and abolitionists white and black and they, in turn, were completely captivated by her and taken in by her. And she demanded that they, they do more because they could. They were in the North. They could do so much more. She demanded they do more. 
um, they risk more, they be better people. And many of them rose to that occasion. She inspired them uh, to do much, much more. And she clearly was dependent on those people still in the slave in, in Maryland and Delaware who were enslaved that help her network operate so successfully. Now, the of course, she is understandably most famous for her work on, uh, as, you know, as the conductor of the of the Underground Railroad. But uh, lesser known is a role that she played in the Civil War itself. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Right. Because that, that one's, you know, it's amazing to go back to our, our mythology question. Why did they need to make up, up stories about her when there's... I know, they were so <laughs> great to begin with. <laughs> oh, She battled slavery her whole life in Maryland. And then once she escaped to freedom, she continued to wage a battle against slavery. Once the Civil War started, she took her fight to the battlefield literally during the war. And Governor John Andrew of Massachusetts had met her during the 1850s in Boston. And he was one of those people that was completely taken by her and inspired by her. So when the war started, he was the first to demand um, and got permission to form a black regiment, the Massachusetts 54th. And at the same time, he contacted Tubman and and suggested, you know, let's go, why don't you go down south? So he made arrangements for her to go to Hilton Head in South Carolina in that district. And so, and it's interesting because we knew that story, um, but in the, the Massachusetts Historical Society, a few years ago, they were going through his, uh, John Andrews papers, and there were letters that testified to him making those arrangements for Tubman, because there were doubters out there. They're like, no, she didn't lead a raid. She didn't, she wasn't a spy and a scout. Well, there are the letters. So um, yes, he sent her down there. She went down there and she worked as a spy and a scout. And she led um, eight male scouts, um, African-American men. Some were formerly enslaved in the region. And um, she was incredibly effective. And she helped um, lead a raid of the Combe River in early June of 1863. She was credited as being the first woman to lead an armed raid in on American soil um, during wartime. And she was successful up the Combe River. They routed out rebel forces, burned down plantations, and liberated 750 people. And newspapers published the story after the raid and said that the black she-Moses was the one that was responsible for the raid. I mean, how does that happen in 1863? These white newspapers are crediting a little black woman with this incredible raid. So those union generals admired her, they respected her. They knew she was brilliant. She was a, had a brilliant mind and they trusted her and they supported her efforts and they benefited from it. Can you talk about some of the key sources that you were able to use to develop your, your findings? And, and a related question, if there was, I, I, do you have perhaps a, a particular moment that stands out, uh, at, you know, as like the aha moment of the incredible discovery that was able to, to push you to, to, to another place? Oh my gosh, there were so many of those moments. That's not fair. Um, Take more than one if you'd like. All right. So one of the important things is doing research. So in New England, starting my research in New England when I was a graduate student at um, the University of New Hampshire, 
it, the, the archives up in New England, all those abolitionist families left their papers to libraries and archives and museums. So there's all, you know, there's so much material up here and who knew they were all writing about Harriet Tubman. So I'd go through these collections and there's Harriet Tubman. Oh, Harriet said this, Harriet did that. Oh my goodness, she rescued this, she rescued. So that was mind blowing to see that they were writing about her. And then down south, um, I had always heard that you're not going to have much luck. She was a slave. You know, you, you're not going to find anything. Well, enslaved people were property and there were many records kept on them. So I come from a family of lawyers and I remember my, my brother saying to me, uh, well, when you go look, you know, the first thing you should look at are court cases, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my lawyer brother, of course, he's going to say that. But he was right to look. And I just, I did that. I went there and I'm in the Maryland State Archives and I opened up some books about court cases. And there are court cases involving Harriet Tubman and her family, ownership cases and lawsuits about the ownership of her family. She wasn't famous then, her family wasn't famous then, but I encourage everybody who does this sort of research in, in involving people who were once enslaved, look for court cases. And there's testimony about people that knew Harriet Tubman and her siblings. So I was able to document who her siblings are, how old they were, when they ran away, when they died, you know, the, the distant relatives and the communities of people that she was enslaved with, which helped me imagine that landscape of people who helped raise her and protect her and educate her. They all had names. There they are in those documents. They have names. So those were aha moments for me to identify those people that loved her and protected her and helped create Harriet Tubman, the incredible freedom. Um, the first one is, um, I, I was interesting to note uh, in the last five, six years, uh, a lot of people have evolved on the language uh, that they use to describe enslaved people, freedom seekers. And, and I have noticed that you are, you seem to be an adherent to that, but you're, you're very careful about that. Um, not everybody that I've, that I've interviewed is there yet or, or, or made that decision. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on, uh, you know, on that subject matter. So when I wrote my book back, you know, 20 years ago, um, you know, slave and slavery was, what we said, but I do appreciate the perspective that they, because we have that image, it's an old image of slaves, that they're just, they're not really people. And um, it was, it, that's a condition. It was not who they were. So I respect that. That's why I try to use enslaved. And when I speak of the, um, the people who legally own them as property, I call them enslavers rather than master, which is really interesting because now when you look at real estate listings, just as an aside, they don't call the main bedroom for like the couple in the house, they call it the primary bedroom. They don't call it the master bedroom anymore. So we're evolving because those words master and slave have such weight to them and they don't tell us who the people are behind those words. Right. And I, I, just, I just got into a little Twitter battle with somebody ill-advised, but I, I offhandedly mentioned, maybe we should stop, or we should stop using the word planter to describe these rich plantation owners who have never gotten their hands in the soil once in their life. <laughs> but uh, that's perhaps not the best forum for that discussion. It's not a good forum for any discussion. 
it, and, and also this whole thing about capturing Africans and selling them and bringing them to the new world. So I shorthand it and I say they were kidnapped. And I know that's used by many people, but I've been called out recently. You can't say they were kidnapped. They were captured in war and sold. It's like, you know what? They were kidnapped. I'm not getting into that. So, right. Yeah. And I, I was, that was another, new, that was one that I did learn um, recently was the, it, obviously slave catcher doesn't work because you're trying to get rid of the word, the, the, you know, the, the first word there. So kidnapper, that, that works perfectly when yeah, uh, yeah. You know, those folks come up north. Yeah. Or bounty hunter, you know, because they're, they're really hunting for the bounty. You know, right. they want and, that money. and it really doesn't even matter if the person's actually who they're trying to capture. All right. Last question is actually giving you an opportunity to, to sort of a plug. Uh, you played a role in the Harriet uh, Tubman Underground uh, Railroad State and National Park, as well as the Byway and All-American Road. Um, what might a visitor to the Eastern Shore get out of spending a day experiencing the landscape and exhibits of the, of the museum? They will be swept away by the landscape driving along. And some of those landscapes have not changed since Harriet Tubman was there. Uh, the land actually is sinking, so it's a little bit more wet climate change, but you're gonna see the fields and the woods and the pathways, and you're going to see the water. You, it's gonna force you to think about how she navigated across that landscape as a child, as a teenager, as an adult escaping and then coming back and, and rescuing other people. It will really, you'll be enlightened. You will learn about many, many different people and um, you will, it's a, it's a slice of American history in a microcosm right there. And so please visit the Eastern shore and drive that byway and go to the visitor center. And also in Auburn, New York, where she spent the last more than 50 years of her life in freedom. That was Harriet Tubman's freedom home. And there's something powerful about her home there, her house, her gardens. You know, she lived out, um, she loved the land. And as the director of the Tubman home in Auburn said, she loved Maryland, she missed Maryland. So she recreated Maryland in Auburn, New York. So I encourage everybody to go there and see it. And I can testify both to both, actually, because I took my, uh, I was obviously recently at, at, at Auburn, but also a few years ago, or actually, when was it? I don't even know when it was. Very recently, took my uh, teenage daughter to uh, to the Eastern Shore and, and visited the, those locations. And uh, it had a profound impact on her. But And then as a teacher, I, like you just said, I can visualize it so much better, uh, you know, and, and, and do some of the description to my, to, to my students. So I just wanted to say one thing about students and literacy and learning, because it's so important. And I teachers talk about this with me when I give these talks about looking at their students as having different literacies. And um, I was deeply affected by a young girl a few years ago who made me start thinking about different literacies. Um, she was in sixth grade in Auburn, New York, and she suffered with severe dyslexia. So she had a great difficulty reading and writing. And she told me this and she said, but I learned about Harriet and she couldn't read or write and look what she did. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. <laughs>